Welcome to the Revenue Marketing Report powered by Caliber Mind. I'm your host, Kamala Thompson, and today I'm joined by Brendan Dell. Brendan, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Brendan Dell. Uh, I live in wonderful Bend, Oregon now, as of recently. Uh, and uh, I've worked in tech for the last 15 years. I currently run an early stage growth accelerator called Tech Accelerate that helps B2B SaaS companies um, uh, grow beyond uh, initial product market fit to build scalable go-to-market engines. So I don't know that all marketers are very involved with the pitch. Certainly certain parts of marketing are, but sure. what... what um, how can the right pitch influence a company as a whole? Let's start there. So when you think about what you're trying to do as a marketer, you're you're really trying to create demand for a product, right? You're trying to create some sort of emotional resonance um, with a group of people, whoever your ideal customer is, um, and um, have those people believe that your product is the right thing for them. Um, ideally, upstream of doing the sort of bottom funnel, right? Like analysis of this feature or that feature. And there's actually a lot of good data around this. There's a study called the long and the long and the short of it. Uh, I always forget the guy's first names, but it's uh, Fields and Benet is the the last names of the, the gentleman who did this. And they looked at what drives effectiveness in B2B marketing. So like what kind of marketing drives the biggest results at different companies of different stages and so forth. And what they found was that essentially optimizing for fame in B2B is what uh, is what drove the biggest results. So what does that mean to optimize for fame? It means that somebody thinks that you're the category leader, which means you're the best choice for them. The pitch is the unit of which you can scale that positioning, right? So you want to be known, we take a company called like Check. Check is a unicorn. Um, they recently raised their Series C. They uh, position themselves as go-to-market security. This was a category they created. It's not something that existed before. Um, and by unifying the whole company around one pitch, one idea, one story, they're then able to create consistency, create mind share in that market. And as marketers, you're then succeeding in doing your job, which is to have people coming in who are in a buying cycle who already believe that you're the right choice for them. I had somebody boil this down really succinctly, and I want to see if you agree with this. So basically, this person said, um, messaging, the pitch, basically, you're trying to evoke, like you said, an emotional response from somebody who has zero context about who you are and what you do. And the reason why a lot of companies struggle with creating a really concise accurate pitch is because they're really close to the product and what they do as a company and they already have the context. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that statement. I think that's very astute. And I think the other reason that people have, that, that companies struggle with this is they lack clarity around their buyer. So they see a lot of opportunities and use cases for a given technology and they don't want to focus and they are un, uncertain of exactly the pain they're solving for in many cases. Something that somebody said to me on, on uh, my show the other day, which is called Billion Dollar Tech, uh, the, these guys, the, he's the founder of Oyster HR, it's another unicorn company. Um, and he was saying there's too many companies out there that have solutions looking for problems. And it's his job to focus on what the problem is so he can create a solution to suit. And I, th I thought that was very astute. And I think that bleeds into messaging as well because people have created this was this thing they think is cool, 
but they haven't figured out who's the person with the problem that they're solving for. And of course, you, it's very, very difficult to be relevant and to create that emotional reaction if you don't know what that thing is. Right. And I've seen actually a lot of people start out knowing exactly what pro- like the problem inspired them. And then they got so into building the product and the mechanics and the politics and all of that stuff that they completely lost sight of that original inspiration. So getting them back to that is really hard. Um, So how, how do we dial in on that perfect buyer? How should we be thinking about that? I I know how I've, I've seen some companies think about it and it not work out so well. So that's why I'm asking. So I think this is not an easy uh, this is not an easy answer. I think there's a variety of ways that you can do it, and it depends on the stage of the business. When you're early, I think to the extent that you almost can't go too narrow. One of the commonalities I've heard from all the interviews I've done and all the companies I've worked with, I've heard many many times from founders telling me. We, we started off with clarity around who we were selling to. We tried to go broad. We lost our way. We lost our focus and we had to come back and refocus and it really slowed us down. To date, I have yet to hear, hear someone tell me we started too narrow in who we were trying to target and it shot us in the foot. <laughs> um, so I think to the extent that you can get super clear on who this person is and what the shared pains are... Um, you can take you know that that bottoms up approach to defining a an ideal customer. Apologies to anyone listening to this. My voice is like still recovering from a some sort of illness my kid gave me last week. Oh no worries, they're like little adorable petri dishes. They just <laughs> they pick are. up everything and pass it along. <laughs> that is exactly correct. Yeah. Um, so where I've seen some not that I'm a pitch expert, but where I've seen quite a few pitches fall flat before they're even delivered is, you know, we're in a downturn and we have to focus on saving people time and money. Everyone, not everyone, a lot of companies, those are one of the things that they, they harp on. What's the issue with just coming to somebody and saying, we save you time and money? Well, there's a well-documented phenomenon and I'm going to, I'm going to totally lapse on the name right now, but essentially when people hear the same thing over and over again, you can, and they've, they've measured this, that, you know, your, your response to that light and this happens in language and you can even think of like a fan. How about like, you know, a fan, the noise of a fan disappears into the background. The same thing happens with language and the same thing that happens with marketing. So when people make similar promises, they start to get tuned out because the question becomes how, and if you don't have a unique or novel how, people don't believe that you can actually deliver on the thing that you're promising. And so it doesn't seem unique to them. It sounds like something they've already heard and they just, they move on. Everyone's default response in a world where everybody's heard the stats, right? You get whatever the number is now, like, you know, thousands of media hits a day is you default to ignore. So to the extent that you can ignore something, you, you will try. So before people jump to starting their pitch with the how you solve the problem, what should the pitch, like, let's boil down the pitch to what they should be focused on and how to grab somebody's attention. Sure. So the framework that we use um, is based on the notion that in the modern landscape, you have to be a must have, right? You can't be a vitamin. You have to be the pain reliever because there's too many vitamins out there and 
especially in the space in which I operate, which is in tech, everybody's over teched. There's too much stuff and everybody, you know, they're, they're, you know, they can't tell the difference. They're, they're, everything seems the same. So the framework becomes, what is the status quo right now? And how do you, this is going to sound a little bit convoluted, but we can get into examples of this, but how do you create an imperative for change? Because if you look at the, if you look at people's sales history and you look at reasons for close lost, or basically the reason they didn't go closed one, it's no decision is the most common reason. It's actually that people just did nothing and they continued doing whatever it was they were doing. It wasn't that they chose a competitor for some other reason. And so you're trying to overcome that inertia first and foremost. Uh, and you do that by highlighting change, by showing in some um, necessary and ideally like stirring way that something is different in the world right now that is creating an imperative to do things differently. And that really resonates because I think any of us who've been at a company and an operations role in particular, people really aren't interested in changing how they do things unless there's a problem. So there has to be some kind of pain or motivator. There has to be a reason to want a pain reliever. They're not going to take the vitamin because changing what they do today, if things are working, they don't want to break what works. So how can we if it's helpful i can give people some examples of how they might think about yes. like beginning a, a, a deck because i think you know or, or a pitch and you could think about this in terms of so the, we use what what we call and this is not a, this is not a novel idea but essentially you're thinking about an inciting statistic so how do you read the challenge you know the challenger sale was one version of this but how do you give how do you help illuminate a problem that people don't realize that they have and I'll give you two examples of this from actual companies. So Gong, who's the this, you know, the revenue intelligence company, the first slide in their deck, and I always screw up the exact percentage, but it's something like 55% of your of your winnable opportunities will not close. And if you say that to a sales leader, this immediately becomes, well, why? Right? Like that's a scary idea that over half your pipeline that you should be winning is something that you're not currently winning. So it creates an imperative saying, okay, is there a new way that's going to allow me to address this unseen problem in a new way? A second example uh, is from a company, I don't know if I should name names, it's somebody I'm currently working with, but they work in the healthcare space. Uh, it's, a, it's, a health, it's a healthcare tech, tech company, MedTech. And what they're dealing in an, in an environment where 50% of their market is currently using paper-based processes still. And they sell a solution that automates the tracking of um, certain kind of instrumentation. There's a lot of markets, surprisingly, out there that are still like this, that are still heavily reliant on, on paper and so forth. And so what their pitch reads like today is very, first of all, convoluted. It's difficult to understand, but it's very aspirational. It says things like, we're going to advance you into the future and so forth. The problem is these people have been operating on paper for since you know the beginning of time or whatever. And they all know it sucks and they all know it's painful. So you have to create a scenario in which they can see the reason that this matters right now. And so what we're working with right now is they have statistics on how long should it take you to process a given uh, instrument and with what error rate. So the first slide in our deck reads, it should take you 17 seconds to process it. Uh, uh, on average, it should take you 17 seconds to process a sterile instrument with an error rate of less than 3%. So what is your error rate right now? Or what, what, how long does it take you right now? 
They don't know the answer to that. And in a world where they're trying to drive efficiency, they're under cost pressure and so forth, their inability to answer that immediately sheds light on a huge problem for these people that all of a sudden creates an imperative to change and has been very successful for them. So that's two examples of, of the beginnings of how you can think to formulate that. So what I think is interesting about that is while you're using statistics, you're using them to highlight something that's tied to something emotional for the person. So as we know, research has shown over and over again that we people, humans, are emotional buyers and then we rationalize it. In one foul swoop, you're playing in on their emotions. You're wasting a ton of time and you're not as efficient as you could be and you're giving them the data to rationalize their decision later. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, no, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, and what you pointed out is something that's really important and I, I think is becoming more well-known, but it is really worth like t taking a beat on. And, and it'll be that, you know, doctors, for example, are are always saying how uh, you know logical they are and rational they are. There's a study actually, uh, um, well, it's it's a it's a lecture by this gentleman named Stephen Novella, who's a who's a doctor at Yale, and it's called Your Deceptive Mind for anyone who's interested. And it talks about the degree of you know how irrational we all are. And there is so in that same long and the short study, it's very clear that even in and especially in B two B we buy based on emotion and then we we you know back that up on logic and you know one one example of this is that when they did when they did research showing what 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 are people most afraid of at work it was not getting fired or something like that it was making a mistake it was looking bad in front of their peers and the reason fame works is because you're optimizing for well look everybody made this decision so there's no way for you to look bad right everybody got fired for nobody got fired for buying IBM and so you, you you absolutely are correct in that you are, you have to optimize for that emotional outcome first. It doesn't mean that these are not educated buyers who understand the market. They are. They know what time it is. Uh, but you have to find that novel way to hit on both that emotional need and, and stimulate them feeling like they're bringing a logical lens to the decision. Humans are so fascinating. They really I, are. <laughs> I mean, and there's a lot of examples. I'm not making this political, but there was a poll done. 70% of people feel that other people's news was biased and, and unrealistic, but theirs was fine. And I'm like, okay, how? And it was on both sides of whatever they were watching. It was consistent. And I'm like, do we really care about the validity of a statement anymore? Or do we care that it resonates with how we feel about that thing? Yeah, I mean, that's when they do research saying, uh, they'll ask people, do, do you think you're of above average intelligence? And it's something like 90 something percent of people will say they're of above average intelligence. And obviously, not all of us can be above average intelligence. So we, we yeah, we're, we very, we have, we're very poor decision maker and if your audience is you know interested in there's there's actually there's a guy named donald hoffman who's done a lot of research around his book is called um reality is not what it seems or something like that and basically the whole premise is that we see a very small slice of reality and um it's it's because that's what's adaptive there's too much going on for us to to internalize it all and it comes down to how we make decisions right there's no way a buyer can look at all the alternatives in a CRM and line by line the features, 
So they go to Salesforce because the implicit promise is you're the category leader. You've probably thought about this. It's good enough for everybody else. It's good enough for me. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. No, I feel sorry for anybody trying to break into that market. It's going to be so hard because, yeah, it's almost a given now. Um, Yeah. Humans, man. They're true. Yeah. Humans. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So... Let's tie this together a little bit more. So we're talking about identifying your ICP. I highly recommend that people don't just ask their sales team and the executive team for the ICP because it's recency bias. We're just going to remember the biggest deal or the last one, not necessarily what makes up the majority of our business. So use a little bit of data. The other thing I would say is it's not enough to come up with a stat or reason you think they want to buy you actually have to ask them questions and talk to them do you see a lot of people forgetting to take that step of doing like the opportunity interviews and actually talking to their audience yeah i mean most companies don't and i think it's it's like the single most important thing that you can do and that goes for established companies early stage companies across the board because they'll give you the words to, you know, it, and there is a balance here. It's like the old Henry Ford thing about, you know, if I would ask people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Um, so, you know, you, you have to bring some some of your judgment to this stuff. But yeah, I, I totally agree. And when I see the, the, like one of the things, this is especially true for younger founders who I think um, are trying to build companies in which they... They haven't necessarily like operated in the space or whatever, you know, they go talk to 200 customers before, like literally, you know what I mean? Like don't talk to five people or 10 people or 20, like go talk to hundreds of people and see if your hypothesis holds up because you will learn so much in that process. And you could probably do that in a month versus like building the wrong thing or going the wrong direction. You know, it could cost you much, much, much more time. And if I could impart one thing, it's that even if you're selling to you, so I sell to marketers, I know my messaging isn't spot on because I'm too close to it. So I'm constantly listening to sales pitches and calls and interviewing people after the opportunity is closed because like you said, they will give you the words. And from a marketing standpoint, that's useful in a lot of different directions, catching their attention with an email, developing the right SEO strategy and actually using the words that they use, and then helping sales um, with their pitch. Uh, Yeah, don't don't assume you know them because you are them. (laughs) Totally. And I would even say that to a degree, being part of that group it hampers your ability to be effective because so many times, like if you think about organizations in any given, like if you're a finance person who's building a finance tool, the reason you want to build that finance tool is likely because like in the spectrum of, you know, professionalism in finance, you have like a triple PhD in finance and the rest of the market is really actually like down in fourth grade. And so you're trying to come up with this like really technical you know, message or really in the weeds message. And it's like, you you know, you're, you want to be specific, but you're too far down. And so being too close to it, I think um, it, it's just one of the most difficult things to over overcome it. And I'll, there's a tool out there called winter for anyone who's interested, which is W Y N T E R. There's also a tool called user testing. You can use it's more expensive. It's less later, um, kind of more involved. Um, but 
winter is a message testing tool. And so you can go come up with a hypothesis and put it in front of your audience and they will show you, they will type feedback for you. You will see exactly what their thinking is and you'll be amazed. Like in, you know, me helping companies come up with messaging all the time, I'm wrong all the time. And so, you know, they, it's, it's just so important to, to see what people think, <laughs> you know, and you can do that by asking, you should do that by both asking them and then, you know, seeing what they actually do, right? Putting the ad in front of them and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So I had this brilliant CEO early on in my career tell the entire company, everyone needs to know the pitch because you're all in sales. Do you agree with Smart. that? Is there value in that? I think that there is. I mean, there there may be, um, you know, I, I don't know, sort of exceptions or, or limits, but in general, I do. And you would just be so amazed at who people know, you know, and if they're able to concisely explain what you do, um, you know, people just know so many people. And at the end of the day, what you're trying to do with marketing or pitch or, or anything is you're just trying to transfer trust, right? Like a category leader says, you can trust me. Everyone else trusts me. I thought about this, right? Um, and so by having a connection there and arming your people to have those conversations, you're, you're, you know, you're cutting the, the trust line, right? Like you don't have to take a year to earn it now. You've already got whatever the depth of that relationship is baked in. And I didn't get it at first, but later on, I'm like, that was freaking brilliant because it's a great recruiting tool too. Like if you just start describing what you do day to day, you're going to see eyes glaze over real fast. But if you can get excited <laughs> yeah. about the mission of the company and talk about it, your friends might be like, hey, that sounds pretty neat. Are there any openings in such and such role? Totally. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's just a super one of the common out so on my on my podcast we'll interview both like early stage founders and then CEOs who've gotten to that billion dollar valuation. And I'm I'm telling you, like the stark difference in those in the CEOs who have gotten to that mature, you know, they, who've built these companies and their ability when I cause I do this segment at the beginning, you say rate my pitch, right? And so we'll we, you know, we, we and we'll have them um do their pitch. The difference, I mean these there's never they never miss a beat. They're like, bam, here's the thing. And so many of the early stage companies, which is of course, right, there's some learning that's happening when you're early. It's natural. But it's it's something I see again and again. These people they, they've got it dialed. What they do, who they who they help, how they help, why it's different. They 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 know immediately. And uh, I just think it's a superpower. It's definitely one I don't have because if you'd asked me, I would have gone, uh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is well, funny because I used, yeah, I used to help authors with their pitches and I, I've sold multiple novels. But when it comes to succinctly boiling down a company, it can be it can be hard. It can be hard. If I think doing it. it for yourself is so hard too, and which is why I think it's so important to go get go get feedback because otherwise, you know, the most the most damaging thing that anyone can do uh, is is spin on it, you know, and, like and and there, there's a difference between iterating and spinning, you know, but it's just wondering, you know, you can't you're not going to wonder yourself into the answer. And this is not to you, but to anyone listening, you know, the um, and I've been guilty of that, too. So, I, yeah, it's a human thing. Uh, I think a lot of people who are good at selling are terrible at selling themselves. And it always blows my mind when I'm in the interview process looking for a candidate. I'm like I, I know you can sell. I can see your stats, but what 
why do you want to be here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think so. it's funny because some, I, th I think it's, it, you know, it's just different when you're talking about something else, right? Like, you know. It, yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. Humility is overrated. I'm kidding. I don't actually. <laughs> yeah. So, Brandon, you mentioned your podcast. Where else can people find you online? Yeah, so they can find me on LinkedIn, uh, on Instagram. It's the Brendan Dell, and then um, the the podcast is on YouTube, Million Dollar Tech, um, and my website's brendandell.com. Thank you for being on the show. For those of you listening, please rate, review, subscribe, tell two friends. It does make a difference. And for those of you looking for more great content like this, check out CaliberMind.com.